I got to tell you how excited I am about the launch of our West Campus. This past Friday night, if you weren't a uh, part of our vision night on our uh, West Campus, it was an incredible night where we gathered together to worship and, and learn more about what it's going to be like to be one church in multiple locations. And we're going to be doing these nights uh, for uh, over the course of the next several months until we actually launch that campus later on in the fall. And uh, you, you don't want to miss out. There was a lot of energy there, and it's going to give you a good idea of what to expect. Not only that, but this is our way of saying, hey, we need you to be a part of what we're doing. You can contribute. You have a part in this journey. And here's what it looks like. The next vision night on our West Campus is going to be at the end of July, I think the 28th at 6.30 p.m. Child care is provided. You don't want to miss out on that. All right. It's going to be an incredible night as we lead up to the launch of the West Campus later on this year. I am so excited about it, as I know many of you are as well. Now, this weekend, we are going to wrap up this series that we've been in for the past several weeks called The Journey of Two. And, and in this series, we've been looking at God's design for love, sex, dating, marriage, some really important parts of our life, right? And here's the thing. No matter who you are, whatever your background may be, regardless of your past, at the end of the day, our need in life is the exact same thing. We're all aiming towards that exact same target, okay? I mean, regardless if you've been a Christian your entire life, or maybe you don't consider yourself very religious or or spiritual, at the end of the day, we all desire and need someone in our life to love us just as we are, right? Right? I mean, completely. I mean, when our flaws and mistakes are revealed, we still need someone to stick with us through those moments. Now, just to prove this point a little bit, let, let's start out by playing a little bit of a, a game that we're going to call Name That Song, okay? And here, here's how this is going to work. I'm going to play the intro of a pretty popular song during its time, and you're going to try to guess the name of the song, okay? And so after you have the attempt of guessing it, we're then going to play the chorus to see if you are right or not, all right? The first one, it was a 1984 hit. Let's play the intro and see if you know what song this is, okay? Check it out. memories for any of you? All right, go ahead and cut that off. All right, what song is that? All right, well, let's go ahead and play the chorus, see if you are right about that. Some of you are like, yeah, that reminds me of my ex-girlfriend. This is kind of awkward. All right, here's uh, (laughs) uh, I don't know where that came from. Number two, uh, this song, early 90s hit. You you should get it right off. Let's play the intro. Check this out. Come on. Yeah. You're from Kentucky. You should at least know this one. All right, what song is that? Aki breaky hard. Nothing says mullet quite like Billy Ray Cyrus in the early 90s. Let's go ahead and play that chorus. 
play okay and you should know that I changed the song from last night during our service because nobody got it apparently Puff Daddy isn't as popular as I thought he was it's a good song for me I liked it check this song out name this song oh yeah all right what song is that love story who sang it Taylor Swift let's play the chorus very good just breakups. <laughs> now, regardless if you like those songs or not, I mean, they're all sung by different artists in a different genre during a different decade, and yet the, the message is kind of the same. They're all expressing the same desire, and that is love. I mean, I, I want to be loved. I, I want to be embraced for who I am. I mean, none of us grow up longing to meet that special someone who's only going to love part of us or is only going to stick with some of us throughout the course of life. And then once we get to that chapter, they're just going to leave and, and go and love someone else. No, we, we all want to be loved for who we are, right? And that's the reason why a lot of us get married is, is we have finally found that person who's going to meet our needs, is going to meet our every want, they're going to make us feel a certain way, and, and there's no doubt that's been the case while you've dated them, and, and even through engagement, right? But some of us who, who have gotten beyond the honeymoon, beyond the wedding, you maybe have arrived at this point in your marriage where the emotions have kind of died off, the feelings are no longer there anymore, and you think love really isn't in the air anymore. I mean, after you said, I do, you expected that it would just be, you lived happily ever after. But if we're honest with ourselves, a lot of us, that's the furthest thing from reality right now, isn't it? You see, sometimes love and marriage, and it's not all that it's cracked up to be, right? So some of us, we look back and we wish we would have known some things before we actually got married. You see, as a culture, as a society, here, here's one of our problems. Our standards for romance has increased while our expectation of commitment has decreased. And, and so we've ended up in this place of, of putting this pressure and weight upon another person that honestly, at the end of the day, we're setting ourselves up for disappointment and failure because the other person just can't possibly meet all of those needs and wants that we have. And so regardless of what your relational status may be, here's some things that I think some of us wish we would have known before marriage. First one goes like this, okay? Your marriage is defined by how you transition from falling in love to staying in love. All right, everybody can fall in love. That's pretty easy, but it's difficult to actually remain in love, to stay in love. Why? Because it requires commitment. It means serving the other person even when they don't deserve it. Now, the closer you get to somebody, the more you see their flaws and their mistakes, I mean, the bigger they become, and, and maybe even the more it hurts you, or the more offended you are about what you don't like in the other person. Conflict is a very normal part of every relationship, isn't it? I mean, no matter how much you love Jesus, or how much your spouse loves Jesus, that doesn't mean that you aren't going to have fights and arguments and tension along the way, all right? It's very normal for that to take place. Arguments are very normal, all right? Now, you need to know, I have a great marriage. I love my wife, Savannah. In fact, we have such a good relationship that I've determined a long time ago, if she ever leaves me, I'm going with her, all right? <laughs> 
But we've had a lot of mistakes. We've made a lot of mistakes. We've had a lot of fights and arguments along the way. One of our biggest fights that we've ever had actually happened on the 20-minute drive from our rehearsal to the rehearsal dinner. Yeah, it was awesome. I mean, I don't even remember specifically what it was about, but I just remember both of us were really stressed. We were anxious, and the details weren't coming together like we thought, and I was a little bit worried about what getting married really meant and what it was going to be like. And and so we just were going back and forth, yelling at each other in the car on the way to the rehearsal dinner. And, And again, I don't remember what it was about, but I remember saying this at one point to Savannah. I said, all right, well, are you sure you want to marry me tomorrow? Yeah. Not a good thing to say. Now, what made it worse is when we got to the rehearsal dinner, our wedding photographer was there, and he made us do this really stupid, cheesy pose where we gazed into each other's eyes up against the column, and so we're looking at each other like, I, I don't even know if this is going to work out. Like, you know, save your receipts, okay, for those of you who are getting us gifts. And so it was in that moment that Savannah realized, I'm not marrying Noah from the notebook. All right, he can't possibly meet that standard at at every waking moment. Now, whether you know it or not, 15% of marriages that go through divorce happen within the first three years after your first child. Why is that? Well, because adding another human being into the mix adds a level of complexity and stress to the relationship. And so as a result, you see a completely different side to the person that you've chosen to marry that you didn't know was there to begin with. Here's the second thing that I want you to know. The absence of conflict is an illusion of peace. All right, just because you love your spouse or you have a great marriage, it doesn't mean that you're never going to fight or argue. No, the indication of a healthy marriage isn't determined by how few fights you have. The indication of a healthy marriage isn't determined by how many battles you win. No, a marriage that God intends for you to experience and intends for you to walk is is this relationship where you are free to to express yourself to one another and and vent towards one another without having to worry, is she going to leave me? Is he going to not be by my side any longer? And that's why it's been said that that marriage is one of the only areas of our life where you can win every battle and still lose the war. (laughs) And so how do you do conflict, though, in a healthy way? How can you resolve tension and fights without having to worry about the future of your marriage in jeopardy? That's what we're going to look at today, all right? And so if you have your Bibles or Bible app on your phone, I want you to go ahead and turn to the book of Song of Songs. If if you don't have a Bible, there should be a black Bible right in the chair in front of you. If you're worshiping with us back in the chapel, it's on one of those tables as you walked in a minute ago. Or if you're uh, worshiping with us online, uh, you can simply follow along. The words will be up here on the screen. And if you don't own a Bible, that black Bible is is, uh, our gift to you. Feel free to steal from us today. Take it with you when you leave here. And uh, Song of Songs can be found about half way through the Bible in between the books of Ecclesiastes and and Isaiah. Sometimes this book is referred to as the Song of Solomon, okay? It was written by a guy named Solomon who was a king of Israel at one point in time, and uh, it was written about 3,000 years ago. It was written by Solomon, and and in this book, we we really see what the journey of two is all about. He really doesn't hold back on any details. It's It's a very explicit description of what marriage is like, okay? Last week, we looked at chapter 4, which uh, Solomon gave us a pretty detailed account of, of what their wedding night was like, what it was like when they had sex for the very first time. He didn't hold back any details, all right? And so in chapter 5, which is where we're going to pick up right now, we see their first fight breaking out, all right? And so if you're following along, pick up with me in, in verse 2. This is Solomon's wife talking. She says this, 
She says, I slept, but my heart was awake. Listen, my beloved is knocking. All right, so Solomon is at the door, knocking on the bedroom door. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. He's trying to woo her, all right? My head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. What's happening here? Well, the honeymoon isn't even over yet, and this couple's having their first argument. All right, now we have no idea what this fight's all about. It's likely that, that Solomon had come home from a long day at work. That's what's meant when he said that, that my head is drenched with dew and my hair with the dampness of night. He was sweating. Why? Because he had been working hard that day. And so I wonder, what went through his mind from the moment he left the office until he pulled into his driveway that evening? And what was he expecting would happen or ex- what, what he could experience when he walked into the living room for the first time? I mean, maybe he imagined the kind of dinner that was going to be prepared for him on the dinner table when he walked through the door. I mean, maybe he was thinking about his favorite meal and how there was no doubt his wife was going to have it just prepared for him. Or, or maybe he, he thought about how great the, the big game is going to be to watch on TV later that night. And, and But he hadn't invited his friends over. It wasn't too late. And so he thought to himself, you know what? It, my, my new wife won't mind if I have my friends over to watch the game, right? She, she, she won't bother. Now, meanwhile, understand that, that his bride here has been by herself, in their home all day long, probably feeling pretty lonely, probably feeling a little bit down. There's no doubt that that she wondered what it would be like to still be with her parents. She she longed to be back home. She missed her family members, all right? She was maybe a little bit agitated that Solomon hadn't bothered to contact her throughout that day. And the more she thought about it, she wondered why he hadn't left her a note on their bathroom mirror before he left, to, left for work earlier that morning. Or, or maybe he left the toilet seat up, or he didn't dust off their white bed sheets because his chest hair was still all over it when he woke up earlier that morning. We don't know what the tension was about, but we do know that it was real, all right? Something was getting between the two of them. And so as a way to deal with, with her frustration, what did she do? She, she just went to sleep. She decided to try to just sleep it off. And in Solomon, he wasn't even home yet. He walked in the house. He didn't hear a sound. Maybe the lights were, were off and there was a note on the counter that read, hey, I've gone to bed. If you're hungry, there's a microwavable meal in the freezer. Put it in the microwave. Solomon always hated those things. Why? Because when you pull it out of the microwave, half of it is still ice and the other half is like lava about ready to melt the cardboard. You know what I mean? That wasn't the meal that he had imagined. It wasn't what he expected. And so he walked up to their bedroom and attempted to reconcile and and try to win her over with his words. Check out how she responds. The message paraphrases her response like this. She says, but I'm in my nightgown. Not in the mood, Solomon. He's wanting to have sex. Do you expect me to get dressed? Can you just imagine her tone right here? I'm bathing in bed. Do you want me to get dirty? She's basically saying, hey, look. I've gone to sleep. I'm done. I'm out. You you were out too late. So Solomon, he made a rookie mistake right here. What did he do? Well, when it was clear that she wasn't in the mood, he just left. He left their home. He he left to, to, you know, go outside to, to do whatever. Now, what that told her, maybe unintentionally on his part, but what that told her was that, hey, I don't, I didn't really miss you when I was at work. I just missed the idea of you. I just missed the idea of having sex with you. And so when you told me, no, you know what? I'm done. I'm out. I don't want anything to do with you tonight. And so the issue that we really see playing out here is that both of them expected the other person to meet a need that the other person failed to fulfill. 
And so whether we know it or not, our, our natural tendency entering into different relationships, especially marriage, is that the other person is going to give us something. We don't approach relationships with this motivation of what can I give? No, we, we want to know what, what can I get? By show of fans, how many of you have been watching the uh, uh, most recent season of The Bachelorette? Anybody? Come on, no shame in here. Can't lie in church. <laughs> yeah, okay. You guys are liars. We had like <laughs> 10 people last hour, and they're much better Christians than you guys. All right? <clears throat> now, if you, don't, if you haven't seen The Bachelorette before, um, it's a show that just... <laughs> a friend's told me about it, okay? <laughs> I... <laughs> Oh, boy. Hey, we're all being honest and real with each other, all right? Well, it's this show that there's this young 20-something female who starts off with about 30 guys, and she has to select one guy to spend the rest of her life with. She's picking her husband. And so throughout the course of the season, she goes on different dates with them. She's interacting with them in different settings. And with each episode, she votes one of them off. She, she basically crosses them off by saying, hey, I, I don't like him. There's not good chemistry there. I didn't like it how he said that. And so at the end of the season, she selects one of them to be her husband. And, and at the end of the season, they're always at, the contestants are always asked, why, why did you choose him? Like, like, what were the things that led you to say, he, he should be my husband? Now, one thing that you'll never hear one of the bachelorettes say, you'll never hear one of them say, well, you know what? He's just really high maintenance, and I can't wait to put up with that for the rest of my life. You won't hear that, or you won't hear him say, you know, I just love the way that his temper is out of control. It is so attractive. I mean, I just love that, right? You won't, I, I just love his back hair. It's so sexy. Or you know what? He makes $25,000 a year. I can't wait to live in poverty. Nobody ever says that. Why? Because we, we look for a spouse based upon what they can do for us, how our needs and wants will be met, Right? One of the former bachelorettes actually wrote a book, came out early, earlier this year to, to dating uh, single women, giving them advice. And one of, the advice, uh, one of the pieces of advice that she gives them is this. She says, test drive it before you buy it. Test drive it before you buy it. In other words, know what you're getting yourself into before you commit to that. And if we think about it, it only seems logical while evaluating in the dating process how little the other person is going to make us sacrifice in the future. But rather than completing you, I want you to understand this, rather than completing you, he, he will disappoint you. All right, rather, rather than, you know, her being your everything, you, you will eventually see how flawed she is. If you think that your life won't be complete without him or her, you're only setting yourself up for, for even more disappointment because and, and that's a level of pressure and weight that he or she can't possibly live up to. This is why marriage is about choosing to spend the rest of your life with somebody that you're going to fight with. Or choosing a spouse is choosing who do I want to fight with for the rest of my life. Now, this isn't a reason to not marry, all right? And you may say, well, that's a really pessimistic way to look at it. But it's just real. It's just true, right? You see, love requires risk. It requires vulnerability on our part. Author Tim Keller says that one of the biggest mistakes singles make when dating, as they're trying to find a spouse, they're looking for a finished statue when all along they should be really looking for a slab of marble, all right? And so let me ask you this, whether you're married or maybe single or dating, can you still put up with him or her even if he or she remains a block of marble forever? Sometimes we want that finished product we, rather than dealing with the mess that requires getting there. 
So after Solomon's wife rejected him, he, he withdrew. He had a little bit of a pity party, okay? And of course, this made her feel bad. So she got up, opened the door, only to find out that, that she was too late. Check out what happened next in, in verse 6. She said, I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had left. He was gone. My heart sank at his departure. I looked for him, but I didn't find him. I called for him, but, but he did not answer. And so this couple experience what it's like to be frustrated and let down by the other person. That phrase, my heart say, communicates a deep level of pain and anguish and, and, and hurt that the other person has brought to her. Now, this is not the kind of marriage that she envisioned having growing up. Now, sometimes we unknowingly uh, enter into marriage with a lot of expectations that we think are just normal. Everything from how to load a dishwasher, the proper way to, uh, you know, squeeze out toothpaste. And those things we learn as, um, from, from our childhood. And, and typically the things that we see in our mom and dad, we just assume are, are normal. And so unintentionally, we, we put that standard or that expectation on our spouse when they may have a completely different way of seeing things or, or doing things. Now, for example, all right, uh, for for, for us, this has required some adjustment in, in our marriage. Uh, one thing that Savannah saw in her dad growing up was he would get so excited at every little thing. He does a good job at expressing his emotions. He loves surprises. He loves big celebration. Now, me, on the other hand, I'm horrible at all those things. I mean, I am. He, her dad cries at like a Geico commercial, all right? And I can tell you the last time I shed a tear, all right? Now, one, uh, when, when we were first married, this was an adjustment because Savannah needed to learn that, that just because I'm different from her dad doesn't mean that I don't love her any less. And so again, th this is required communication on our part. This is required adjustment. She's had to adjust to realize that I love, I might show her love in a different way, whereas I've had to adjust by faking my emotions, all right? <laughs> Showing that I'm excited when I really could care less, all right? But you know what? That's part of marriage. It, it, it gets complicated. Take a look at how Solomon's wife further describes her pain in verse 7 as she searches for her husband. She says, the watchmen found me as they made their rounds in the city. They beat me. They bruised me. They took away my cloak. Those watchmen of the walls, what in the world is happening here? Right, she doesn't mean that the watchmen of the city actually abused her physically. No, this was a poetic way for her to describe the, the hurt and pain and anguish that she was going through. Remember, she was the queen. But the watchmen weren't doing that. No, she's talking about the guilt and the shame that, that she was experiencing because she felt lonely. She, she was lonely in marriage. But if you look closely enough, you can kind of see a shift in her terminology, a shift in her words, almost a, a change in her tone. She's starting to, to long for Solomon again. Right, in other words, she, she cared very little about what he had done wrong. She just wanted to own whatever she needed to own so that the two of them could be reconciled. You see, when, when conflict happens in, in our relationships, uh, research shows that we tend to respond in one of five ways. And it kind of reveals a different side of us that maybe you didn't know was there or you didn't see in your spouse beforehand. Here, here's the first one, the uh, first way that we respond to conflict. We're simply going to refer to this as the protector. Okay, so when tension happens, you immediately go into defensive mode. All right, you're protecting yourself. You don't want to get hurt. A friend of mine says that argument with your spouse is defined as this, when you stop listening to what I'm saying because you're thinking about what to say when I stop talking. 
And some of us, that's how we respond to, to conflict. The second posture that we might take when there's an argument is the statue, all right? This is when we might stonewall our spouse, give them the silent treatment. We're going to pay them back for the hurt that they caused us, all right? Thursday night, I did this to my wife. I'm guilty of it. We were going out to eat with some of our best friends, and on the way, we got into a big fight. I was going to pay you back, Savannah, so I just didn't communicate. How many of you do that as well? I'm really good at it. It's a spiritual gift of mine, I think, all right? Here's the third way that we might respond. The critic. Right, you, you immediately go into critical mode. Yeah, you see that in me? Well, I haven't told you everything that, that I see in you, or I can't believe you said that or did that, right? We immediately get critical of the other spouse as a way to deflect the uncomfortability of, of having our faults and flaws exposed. Here's the fourth way that we might respond. The runner Right, so when tension emerges, we run the other direction. Maybe you run to shopping. You, you run to a favorite hobby. You, you just have to get away. And for some of us, we learned to do this at a very young age because whenever mom and dad would fight when we were kids, it was uncomfortable. And so you just, you just ran, right? And so when you got in your first argument with your spouse, that, that's what you did. And you maybe still do it to this day. Here's the fifth way and last way. And you might want to write this down, okay? It's the hater. This is perhaps the most dangerous, destructive thing that can happen to your relationship. And now, it's not so much outward, it's not so much verbal that you express towards the person that you've chosen to marry, but it's more internal. In other words, contempt and bitterness and, and hatred almost towards your spouse is taking root deep inside of you. You are making them out to be some big monster or some horrible person when you're just mulling it over in your mind over and over again, analysis, paralysis. And, and so the next thing you know is, is you've woken up next to somebody that you can't stand. You can't even stand to be in the same same room as him or her. And some of us are like, that, that describes where we're at. So Solomon's wife just wanted to be reconciled to Solomon, and so she asked for help from her friends. Check out verse 8. Daughters of Jerusalem, again, those are her friends, I charge you if you find my beloved, what will you tell him? Tell him that, that I am faint with, with love. One of the best and wisest things that you can do when your marriage is on the rocks or is struggling is to ask for help and to get advice from people who are good at giving advice and, and have a proven track record of it. Now, you have to be careful with this, okay, when you get advice because oftentimes they're only hearing one side of the story, and so it may not be objective. It, it, may, not, it may not be wise counsel that you're receiving, and that's why it's important that you are getting counsel from someone who is walking with Jesus, who loves the Lord, who, who, who shows signs of that as well. Now, this is just my opinion. Okay, it's my opinion, but I'm right, all right? Don't always go running towards your mom and dad whenever you and your husband or you and your wife have a fight. Here's why. Because you do that enough, all of a sudden your, your mom and dad, mom or dad, have this tainted view of the person that you've chosen to marry because you've just put all of their faults on display and they've seen how much they have hurt you and so they're, they're left with this tainted, tainted view of you when the reality is after you go and vent to your mom and dad, you go back home and you might, you might reconcile, you might forgive one another, yet rarely do you go back to your mom and dad and say, hey, you know what, it was actually my fault. No, so they're left with this perception of your spouse that is, that is less than, than what is fair. Notice in verse 8 how she tells her friends that Solomon is, is her beloved. Now, that, that's a word that describes companionship, friendship, affection, okay? She's longing for Solomon to just uh, be back by her side. Eventually, her friends wanted to know, it's great you're saying all these nice things about Solomon, but where is he? 
And so he, here's what we read next, chapter 6, verse 2. She says, my beloved has gone down to his garden to the beds of spices to browse in the gardens and to gather lilies. Now, evidently, Solomon just needed to cool off. He just needed to process and get through some of his emotions and words before he did something in the heat of the moment that he regretted. Sometimes the best thing that you can do whenever conflict arises in your relationship is to let the other person process and think through before more hurt or more damage is done. Now, it doesn't necessarily need to be fixed right away. Most often, it's not going to be fixed just like that. No, this is why marriage experts say that it is wise to let the relationship breathe. You've got to have that space sometimes between you and your spouse, your boyfriend, girlfriend, or fiancé. Take a look at the first time that they see each other after their fight. Solomon initiated the conversation by saying this, You are as beautiful as Terza, my darling, as lovely as Jerusalem, as majestic as troops with banners. Now, did you catch what, what Solomon didn't say right here? He didn't say, you know what, I, I can't believe that you locked the bedroom door. <laughs> he didn't say, you know what, I'm so disappointed in you. He didn't say, you know what, if I had married my ex-girlfriend, she would have never done that. That would have been bad, right? <laughs> no, instead he approached her, he pursued her by building her up with his words. There was grace taking place here. There was forgiveness playing out between the two of them. And so as a result, they, they, they reconciled. Right, they made up, and, and they lived happily ever after, right? I mean, if this is as bad as it got for Solomon and his bride, then I can't at all relate to, to what they went through. I mean, if you think about it, they're the model couple. When you look throughout the Bible, that, that they are the couple that God has chosen to spend, to, to write an entire book about, to allow that book to be in Scripture, to show us what love, marriage, sex, and dating is all about. And, and so if they are that exemplary couple for us, surely they lived happily ever after. I mean, they had to have lived a fairy tale life, right? You know, I think one of the mistakes that, that we make whenever we read the Bible is that when we read about different people, we think that they were different than us, and that they were tapped into something that, that we don't have access to today. And, and so we kind of put them into another box or another category. And this may not be intentional, but, but we think, you know what, that, that may have been true for them, but there's no possible way that it can be true for me today, true for my relationship today. And, and so you know what, Patrick, it's great that Solomon and his wife had a little bit of a tip and then they got over it. But I can't relate with that. You see, this doesn't make the news story all too often whenever you read through the Song of Solomon. But they didn't live happily ever after. You see, they, they, they resolved their stuff right here, but you know what? When they woke up the next day, there was another fight. And there was another argument. There was another shouting match. There was more stonewalling that took place. And, and there was more and more and more of that. And again, they, they didn't live happily ever after until eventually it got to a point where Solomon's wife woke up one morning and she realized when she looked over at Solomon that she had been lied to, she had been cheated upon, she had been betrayed. And this whole marriage thing, it was just a bait and switch for Solomon to get what he wanted. You see, reading the Song of Solomon, it's kind of like reading or, or looking at Solomon's Instagram, okay? We're, we're seeing the best version of himself. We're seeing all the good that he brought to the table. It's his highlight reel, yet that was the furthest thing from what actually happened, furthest thing from reality. What do I mean by that? Well, check out what we later learn about how their marriage went, how the journey of two ended between the two of them. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. 
He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. How crazy was he, right? And his wives, they led him astray. Now, I'm not positive about this, but I think God could have probably left that little detail out of the Bible so that we would have walked away with this perception of Solomon and his wife as the ideal couple, as the romantic couple of what it really looks like to live happily ever after. They they lived a fairy tale. They had the perfect marriage. But you see, one of the reasons why I think God allows us to see the reality of their marriage, to see the reality of their relationship, uncensored in all its forms, is so that you would know, so that I would know, that when we walk through stuff in life, and when we hate our spouse, or we can't stand him or her, and, and there's tension, there's conflict, there's fights, you would know you're not alone. It's very normal. And by doing, by realizing that, we would maybe, just maybe, experience the freedom that we need to just take off the mask and to admit that we don't have our stuff together and ask for help. You see, there's no shame in admitting that you're struggling, that you need help, and, and you and your spouse, I just want you to know, you're not alone. Look, I love my wife. We have a great marriage. But I've learned that one of the best ways that I can love Savannah is to ask for help from other people when I need counsel, when we just don't seem to be connecting, when, when we just go days on end without really communicating. One of the best things I can do is talk with other people and getting help and, and saying, hey, I need your advice here. You, you're, not, you're not so subjective to this. Can you give me an objective perspective here? We've made it this far, not because I'm romantic, because I'm not, all right? We've made, I know that shocks you, all right? Uh, but we've made it this far because... We've learned to ask for help, and we all need it. A lot of us right now listening, you're barely hanging on. The last place you want to go home, the last place you want to go to is home, because why? It's a war zone. You don't like him or her. The only thing standing between divorce right now is simply a signature. You've got your attorney on speed dial, or maybe you're just frustrated. He hurt you. She didn't come home. He did the one thing that he promised he would never do again, and yet he did it. And he's taken that trust that you had given him for the third time, and he's broken it time and time and time again, and you think to yourself right about now, I have no idea how I'm going to do it. I don't know how it's going to work out. I can't keep going like this. I'm ready to give up. And that's where a lot of us are at, if we're honest. This past week, I was listening to a leadership talk by a guy who used to serve in the military, and he starts all of his talks in the same exact way. He has everybody in the audience raise both of their hands up high. And so you don't have to do both hands. I just want you to lift one hand up as high as you can possibly go, all right? Now look around the room here for just a second. Keep your hands up. Can you go one more inch? Yeah, you can, can't you? You see, just when you thought you couldn't go further, if you really push yourself, you, you could and, and you can. All right, you can put your hands down. I don't know what seems impossible to you right now. I don't know why it is that you're about ready to throw in the towel. I don't know what it's like to go home in the evenings to your spouse. I don't know how you think that there's no hope for me, that there's no possible way that we can end up in this place of reconciliation. I mean, all hope has been lost. I can't go any further. I don't know how I'm going to do it. And you know what? I don't know how you're going to do it either. 
But some of you think, you know what? I've reached out as far as I can possibly go. I, I've, I've spread thin. I've done everything right. I, I've done it all, and, and yet I've fallen short, and our marriage is still in this place of brokenness, and there's tension between us, and there's arguments and fights, and, and there's just no hope for us. Really? You can't, go, you can't go one more inch? What if, what if Jesus right now is asking you to, to just hang on and to keep reaching out just one more inch? He's not asking you to walk a mile. He's not asking you to run a marathon. He's not asking you to hang on for another year, another month, not even another week. He's just saying, what would it look like for you? What's one thing that you can do to reach a little bit higher? I don't know what that looks like for you. And again, I I don't know how you're going to do it. But what if it's possible for you to keep reaching out and for you to keep going and to hang on and to push yourself further than you thought was possible? You see, one practical way that you can reach out even further is to simply ask for help. And and so here's what I'm going to challenge and encourage you to do. If your marriage is just horrible right now, or maybe it's not in a bad season, but there's just tension and and reality is set in a little bit. The emotions are no longer there. And you just want to know, what what is it like to stay married? How how can I not only stay married, but but actually enjoy it? How can I find joy in marriage? If that's where you're at, we as a church want to come alongside you, all right? You don't have to do this all by yourselves. This church is full of men and women, husbands and wives, who have blown it big time who have who have had really tough seasons of marriage in their past and because they've gone through that they can identify with what you're going through after this service back at our connection center all right which is just outside these back center doors behind that desk if you're worshiping with us back in the chapel it's on the opposite side of the atrium there all right, we're going to have some couples back there that we call our marriage mentors. This is a new ministry that we have where we're, we've trained some men and women in our church, okay, to come alongside you, to encourage you, and to basically say, hey, you know what, what you're going through, we've been there before. We haven't had a perfect marriage, but, but here's what we've learned. Here's some of the things that we've taken away. And, and what if you tried this? What would it look like for you to just reach one more inch in, in this part of your life? And, and you know what, let me just share with you one thing that we went through, and in that when you, do, when you enter into a relationship like that, you realize we're not all by ourselves and, and help and hope is possible. That's what being a marriage mentor is all about. And, and so if, if you decide to be a part of this, we're going to pair you with a couple who's been married for a long time who, who hasn't had a perfect marriage. But these are couples that have learned and have made mistakes and yet are willing to say, hey, here's how you can avoid some of the pain and hurt I've gone through. And we'll pair these couples up with you. If you're willing to just say, hey, we need help. Others of you, you've been married for a long time. You don't have a perfect marriage, but you have a good marriage. And you think you have some things that you can teach as someone who's newly married or is walking through a difficult time. And you think, well, how can, how can I contribute? How, how can I help? How can I be a part of this? Well, would you be willing to sign up to be a marriage mentor? Would you be willing to pour into some newlyweds or, or to some people who are just walking through a tough time and to share some of your past experiences so that maybe, just maybe, some others of us here could, could avoid some pain and hurt. If that's where you're at, simply stop by the Connection Center after the service as well. We'll sign you up and we'll train you. We'll show you what it looks like to actually come alongside uh, those, those uh, couples who, who are struggling, okay? Just because you stop by the Connection Service after service does not mean that your marriage is horrible, okay? There's no shame in this. It just means, hey, I am choosing to love my wife by asking for help, by loving my husband, by asking for help. Because sometimes that's just what we need, right? 